Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, I'll be telling you about the mysterious moving rocks of Death Valley. And Nathan gets physical and tells us about the Large Hadron Collider and how it may be the cause of all the bad things in the world. Content warning, expect foul language, and prepare your tinfoil hat. Let's get ready for another Human Exception. figured out really quickly that I, I was not a, uh, <laughs> a good <laughs> outdoor person. I'm learning. I'm learning. But I am a baby when it comes to outdoor activities. So there is a difference knowledge. between like the crazy fucking hikers and the people who just camp and drink. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is very fair. different subculture. I am a camp and drink. I am not a let's trek for a whole like, day fucking, and then camp yeah, on the no. side of a fucking cliff and with our ultralight no, I, I got better I things to do. With I need an air mattress. Um, at the very least, I have for some like medical reasons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, yeah. like we're totally. we're getting a we're gonna get a new tent for uh, camping this year, specifically yeah. because our air mattress doesn't fit in our tent. Oh God! <laughs> uh, what I really want is one of those like ultra thick air mattresses. Oh, the doubles. Yeah, that like yeah. that actually feel like a raised bed kind of thing. But then ours, you need to... ours is like that, and you can plug it in, and it'll um, continuously stay inflated. Ooh. So you don't have to worry about your bed going flat in the middle of the night, which is my biggest <laughs> trouble. Yeah, that um, power for that though. Yeah, um, I mean. I I ha I can't camp camp anymore. Like I I can't go just like with a sleeping bag and a pad and go in the woods anymore. So um I I definitely like we've looked into getting like a uh an electric not an electric, what am I trying to say? A solar powered battery majigger. I majigger. think Sean has one. Yeah, it's a majigger. You know what I mean. Um where you can like harness the power of the sun to charge your shit. Harness the um, of the sun. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I've definitely, like, I have a list of everything that we want for camping. We're getting some of it this year because um, camping this year is going to be so much fun. But also, there's so many people, and we can't all keep stealing Sean and Christine's things to make camping work. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like every time we go, we end up using Sean and Christine's power generator, Sean and Christine's wash station john and christine stove and i'm like there's gonna be uh more of us this year and uh that's just there's more of you guys this year uh because the duddies are coming oh okay i haven't been there the last few years so and neither um, have we so <laughs> i know you guys should you guys should come too We're, isn't it a weekend that nathan's not here though i thought that's what the thing it's was canada day weekend yeah 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 because i think last the first time when i first met you guys you guys brought you guys brought Daniel with you. Nope. No. No. Oh, no. You guys are picking up Daniel after. No, that was a different time. It was a different time. Yeah. Okay. 
I don't know what I'm talking about then. <laughs> okay. I think I think you guys came, but you guys picked up. Uh, you guys had Daniel for that next long weekend. We never we, went, we stopped in we stopped in at your guys's place oh, on the way. Okay. We were going to um, Powell River. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of blended both of those long weekends together. So, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> we're here to do stuff. I think. Hey. Are we? I. Yes. I'm, I'm so rumor. I, I'm all jazzed for camping now. I don't want to do anything else except for get ready for camping. <laughs> I need to go to Canadian Tire right fucking now and buy a tent and a stove and Maybe one of those foldable so. shovels. Quite <laughs> shit in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I guess welcome back to the human exception where we shit in the woods. I hope my mom doesn't hear this. She's going to be like really upset. <laughs> About you shitting in the woods? <laughs> shit in the woods in a long time. And it's only when there isn't an actual toilet. Cut that out. It's fine. <laughs> Oh my god. Good stuff. Good stuff. Who wants to go first? How traumatized do you guys want to be? Do you want to be traumatized first or last? I don't even really know what Hallie's... I know what Hallie's talking about. I just don't know what it is. Okay, I feel like we should do the traumatizing last then. Okay, I'll go first. (laughs) This is a nice semi-fluffy story, so it'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I already went, and then we can figure out what the stones were. So, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. All good. Yeah, you can tell I'm really paying attention. All right, all right, all right. So we're going to talk about the Sailing Stones of Death Valley. Yes. Yeah. So in 1913, a group of researchers in Death Valley, California, discovered something strange. Massive stones that were strewn across the valley floor left trails some hundreds of feet long in the cracked earth as if they'd moved of their own accord, as there are no signs of humans or animals in the area. So let me get you a picture. Heck yeah. This shit's fucking wild. Mm -hmm. This is like one of the first like weird mysteries I remember learning about as a kid. So yeah, this is kind of what it looks like. It's like, what the fuck? Where are these stone going? Where are these stone going? <laughs> yeah, they have, they have, they have a place to be. All right. Obviously. All right. So Death Valley, it's a desert in Eastern California that during the summer becomes one of the hottest places on Earth, up there with the deserts in the Sahara and the Middle East. Death Valley's Badwater Basin is the lowest point of elevation in North America, at 282 feet below sea level. And is 84 miles uh, or 132 kilometers southeast from Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the conscious U.S. US that's at 14,505 feet. Yep. We have some wild geography here. Yeah. (laughs) They should just, like, build a gondola between those two points. (laughs) Oh, that'd be dope. (laughs) You said it's the highest in the contiguous U.S.? That's what it says. Oh, okay. No, that makes sense. I just wanted to, like, because I was like, hmm... But in North America, it's Denali, so <laughs> it's contiguous U.S. So that's legit. Yeah, it's the U.S., and they don't care about anyone else, right? So give a fuck. Well, we are it, and it's not even the U.S. It's just the parts that all touch each other because we got it gross. <laughs> oh my god! So 
yeah, as you can imagine, this is really a beautiful area. So yeah, I'm going to give you some pictures. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't like desert, and it's pretty. That's <laughs> oh, gorgeous. So it is a place of extremes. On July 10th, 1913, a United States Weather Bureau recorded the highest ambient air temperature ever recorded on Earth at 134 Fahrenheit or 56 uh, Celsius. This reading has been disputed by some experts, but a less less contentious measurement boasts of the highest surface temperature of 201 Fahrenheit or 94 Celsius, which is almost hot enough to boil water. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And uh, apparently when you go visit the area, there's a giant thermometer that you can go stand next to and get pictures of. So yeah, it's hot as balls there. Um, <laughs> no no fucking thank nope. you. Mm-hmm. God, fifty yeah. So the reason it gets so damned hot is well t- tied to a handful of factors. Solar heating is one. The valley surface gets intensely heated due to the clear and dry air, and that the land is really dark and sparsely vegetated. And there's like the trapping of hot air. This heated air gets trapped in the valley due to its north-south orientation, when with the winds that kind of go west-east. <laughs> So it just kind of mm. gets stuck down there. Oh, God. And then the migration of warm air from other areas. So other deserts to the south and east will often have their heated air blown into the valley. So that combined with drought-like conditions that prevent cloud formation, there's little to cool, cool the place down. Even summer nights do little to fight the heat, with temperatures dropping to between 82 to 98 Fahrenheit or 28 to 37 Celsius. <laughs> what the fuck? Which is, like, hotter than most summer days here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Wow. So the climate is so extreme that one to two people die each year due to coming out into the desert unprepared or getting lost. Hence the name Death Valley. Mm -hmm. Death Valley is home to the Timbisha tribe of Native Americans, formerly known as the Panamit Choson, who have inhabited the valley for at least the past millennium. The Timbisha named the valley Tumpisa, which I probably said wrong which means rock paint and refers to the red ochre paint that can be made from the type of clay found in the area. Some families still live in the valley at the Furnace Creek. Another village was in Grapevine Canyon. The Tembisha thrived in this harsh environment, learning to work with the seasons and care for the land to get the most out of it. So imagine their shock when the California gold rush brought prospectors to the area in 1849 that decided to call it Death Valley. (laughs) It's like, we live here. It's only, it's only death if you guys are shitty at it. <laughs> right. But yeah, so after 13 pioneers perished from an early expedition, that's kind of where the name came from. Um, as colonizers are off to do, they stripped the lands of valuable minerals and left little room for the natives that called it home. So after decades of fighting for recognition, in 2000, the Timbisha Homeland Act passed, establishing a 7,000-acre land base for the tribe within its ancestral homelands. 300 acres of this homeland lie within Death Valley National Park, which includes Timbisha Village. Today, they work with National Park Service to help ensure the land is protected. So, thankfully, you know, they've got a place now, but, you know, colonizers, there's being shitty colonizers for a long time, as you imagine. Right. No, like, now you're all bummed out. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> our stones can be found in a part of the valley known as the Racetrack Playa, named as so because it leaves trails left by the stones and the term plata refers to an area that's flat dried up land especially as a desert basin from which water evaporates quickly the plata is really cool looking the cra- uh, floors crack sediment interrupted only by stones in their tracks so it's my pictures and it's just fucking flat which is just wild yeah no no thank you <laughs> no thank you <laughs> 
<laughs> that is so wild. It just the the pictures just they almost don't look real. Right? Super surreal. So the sailing stones go by many different names, sliding rocks, walking rocks, rolling stones, or moving stones. The Death Valley stones are mostly made up of three kinds of stone. Cyanite, which can be found on the west side of the plow. Dolomite, found throughout the edges of the plow. And black dolomite, which is the mo most common type and composes nearly all the stones in the southern half of the plow and originates up a steep cliff about 180-50 feet high. So the bulk of the stones on the plow are between 6 to 18 inches in diameter. So the tracks are typically between typically about 330 feet long and about 3 to 12 inches wide, and usually no deeper than an inch. Wow, what? <laughs> so stones with rough bottoms tend to leave straight striated tracks, while those with smooth bottom bottoms tend to wander more. Trails differ in both directions and length. Rocks that start next to each other may travel parallel for a time before abruptly changing direction to left, right, or even back the direction they came. Trail lengths also vary. Two similarly sized and shaped rocks may travel uniformly, and then one could move ahead or stop on its tracks. So here is a kind of a aerial view of the area with a bunch of the rail. So yeah, you can see that the bunch of the different tracks and they've been marked, so you can kind of see like where you know, pairs of stones went. <laughs> oh, that is cool. Wow. They all have the same, like, trail shape, though. It's just, like, it's been transposed to a different section of the map. <laughs> mm. Copy-paste. <laughs> all right. So, in 1915, Prospector Joseph Crook had been out in the pile looking for ore when he came across the tracks. This would be the first documented encounter with the tracks. I really wanted to find a story from the many indigenous tribes that kind of are associated with the area, but, um, you know, surely they noticed this before anyone else did, I'm sure. But, you know, I, I couldn't find anything, unfortunately, from their stories. So it's probably a lot, of, since a lot of their stuff is oral history and stuff. I probably wouldn't have much luck on the Internet in that regard. But if you know a story, <laughs> I'd love to hear it because I think it'd be fascinating. I'd love to hear the kind of explanations and stuff that they would have came up with themselves. Like, that's yeah. a awesome um so yeah let's get into theories so the first most common theory was animal or human intervention um one theory that the, suggests the sailing stones don't actually stale at all but are instead moved by mischievous human hands and the occasional clumsy animal this theory can easily be dismissed upon expecting the plot floor around the stones as there's no evidence of tampering or outside interference that can be found magnets one of the earliest solid theories was magnetism. A handful of smaller stones have been studied exhaustively, and most were found to have traces of silver. Silver's not magnetic. But in one theory I read, silver can react strangely to magnetic forces. This theory suggests that it could be the stones reacting to the Earth's magnetic field, but there really is no science to support this. And you know what? Then you're far out. For the far out theories, we have everyone's favorite answer, aliens. Always. <laughs> so, allegedly, before the discovery of the stones in the early 1900s, fragments of these, metal, of these strange metal had been found unearthed in the plows surrounding, in the surrounding mountainside, and carefully taken as mementos, or carelessly taken as mementos. These chunks of metal were assumed to be artifacts in the gold rush or part of the now-defunct railroads that ran through the Moha Mojave Desert. One theory suggests that this isn't the case at all, that instead they were fossils of sorts of a prehistoric crash site. 
1935, the Mojave Desert found itself in, the middle, in another mini gold rush due to a large gold vein that was discovered in the immediate area. At this time, a miner and geologist named Solomon Elmquist found himself in the area and was the first to discover an unknown and perplexing metal in the Rocky Mountainside. After years of heavy research and excavation, he released a chapbook with his findings entitled When Will I Be Found, of which only three copies still exist today. Here is a direct quote from that book. I now have unequivocal proof that in a prehistoric era long before mankind, an intelligent not, intelligence not of this earth crashed its flying craft somewhere in the Rocky Mountains of the Mojave Desert. By the time, it was not a barren wasteland, but instead a treacherous overgrown jungle. Jungle. So, Elmkus claimed to have proof that over 65 million years ago, a UFO malfunctioned and crashed somewhere in the vicinity of the racetrack plot. And throughout the years, it slowly began to break down and became encased in a death shroud of solid stone. The only problem is that Solomon Elmquist and all of his research vanished completely, except for the three surviving copies of his chapbook. The story goes that the wreckage remained for millions of years forgotten until one day something activated, something like a magnetic field. This is, quote, the only thing we know about this unknown metal is that it does react when introduced into a magnetic field, but not in the same way it's reacting down at the plow. Something in the vicinity is acting like a beacon, activating the metal fragments and causing them to break free from their earthbound shackles, slowly pulling them towards the source of this magnetic field. Of course, the speed at which these stones move is very minute and only noticeable over the course of several years. But in the late 40s, this strange phenomenon began to speed up. The current rate at which the stones move is still unnoticeable to the human eye, but the new pace is drastically faster than before, as if it's been supercharged. With the advent of GPS, the stones were mapped and a pattern became apparent. All the stones were moving in the same general direction, toward the Nevada border, where 100 miles east is Area 51. The stones call home. <laughs> so, quote, There's these stones. Obviously. <laughs> it's a ship that's trying to rebuild itself, clearly. This is what the guide stones are for. They're guiding the stones home. Oh. Is this the other side of the country. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> Except they're all heading north, aren't they? Well, they're, uh, they're heading. Man. Northeast? I think it's yeah. I think it's north. Yeah, it's east. Yeah, maybe it's a little smidge north. I think. Because that map you showed, where they've got all of them and they're mapping their tracks, looks like they're all moving north. Maybe all moving south. It doesn't really say where they start. <laughs> so, <laughs> quote: These stones, which were once part of the mountainside, have broken free and begun a slow journey journey across the racetrack plaza. Now, factor in that the pace of the stones mysteriously began to increase in the late forties just as the supposed Roswell UFO was sent to Area 51. Are the sailing stones pieces of spacecraft that met its untimely demise during prehistoric times? Was the object that crashed at Roswell, New Mexico, really an extraterrestrial salvage vehicle sent to on another mission to locate the long-vanished spacecraft, only to succumb to the same fate? Is the wreckage at Area 51 giving off a beacon in the form of magnetic field to call its lost brother home? Side note, Solomon Elmquist set up his own personal printing press and hand-printed every copy of his chapbook. It is unknown why, but something made him stop after number 51 and no other copies were ever printed. Obviously for the memes. <laughs> that's, well, that's what I would do. So this is totally believable, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's very coincidental. <laughs> so 
I looked and I couldn't find anything about a second gold rush in 1935. I couldn't find anything about metal fossils. I couldn't find anything that indicated the frequency and speed in which the stones moved had increased since the 1940s. If anything, all evidence points to the opposite. The stones actually don't continually move, even at an incredibly slow rate. They move in bursts. Most damning of all, I couldn't find anything about Solomon Elmquist, the geologist, or his book, When Will I Be Found? Except for the website where I found this theory. <laughs> There's a lot of things mentioned in this article that have since been proven wrong in scientific studies, so I think we can write this off. But I've got a pretty sp- picture of a sailing stone under the stars. What? Mm-hmm. Nebula! It's cool. It's so, yeah. very aesthetic. <laughs> right. Yeah. So now that we've had our fun, let's get down into the science. Um, in 1948, geologists Jim McAllister and Alan Agnew mapped the bedrock in the area and were the first to publish a report about the rocks in the Geologic Society of the American Bulletin. Though they re- their report contained little measurement details and investigation, it did spark interest. In 1952, a National Park Service ranger named Lewis G. Kirk recorded detailed observations of furrow length, width, and general course. He sought simply to investigate and record evidence of the moving rock phenomenon not to hypothesize or create an extensive scientific report but it was after this that hit, after it was after his attempts that the people began to try to solve the mystery in earnest some stones weigh as much as a human with some researchers such as geologist george m stanley who published a paper on the topic in 1955 feel that it's too heavy for the area's winds to move after extensive track mapping and research on rotation of the tracks in relation to the ice, to ice flow rotation, Stanley maintained that the ice sheets around the stone either help to catch the wind or the ice flows initiate the rock movement. Though this is all theory, no one had seen the stones in action. So in the winter, on very cold nights, you'll sometimes get a tiny amount of ice in the area. So his idea being that, you know, the ice sheets would just like work as sails on the stones and cause them to move with the wind. Okay. Yeah. So, in May 1968, Bob Sharp and Dwight Carey started their own observation. 30 stones with fresh tracks were labeled, named, and had stakes placed next to them, marking their location. The stones were observed over a seven-year period. During this time, they tested Stanley's ice flow theory by caging a couple stones with a ring of rebar. The idea being that if the accumulated ice is what what gives the rocks enough surface area to move... The rebar cage should at the very least slow it down, if not stop it entirely. This did not occur. Two out of the three stones managed to remove, get out of their cage completely undeterred. Are the they 30- are sentient. Sorry? They are sentient. <laughs> <laughs> of the 30 stones that were tagged, all but two of them moved during the seven-year period in which the study was conducted. Ten of the initial 30 stones moved in the first winter, with Marianne, Stone A, covering the longest distance of 212 feet. Nancy, stone H, at 2.5 inches in diameter, 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 was the smallest monitored stone. It also moved the longest cumulative distance at 860 feet over the seven-year period, and with its greatest single winter movement of 659 feet. The largest stone to move was 80 pounds. Decent-sized child. Yep. Now, the largest stone observed is Karen, which is stone number seven. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Amazing. So, she is 29 by 19 by 20 inches of dolomite that weighed at an estimated 700 pounds. When Karen was tagged, she did have a fresh set of tracks, but over the next seven years, she did not budge. The researchers hypothesized that the single 
original track was likely just her rolling down from the side of the mountain. But strangely, Karen disappeared in winter 1992-1993. The plow was searched and no sign of Karen was found, nor were there any signs of her being moved by artificial means. To move her would require a truck or other similar equipment, and the delicate plow floor would be dug up by tires, and it just wasn't. A possible sighting of Karen was made in 1994, about a half mile from the plow. Karen was rediscovered by San Jose geologist Paula Messina in 1996, though. But I don't know where she was found. <laughs> I don't know how you lose track of a 700-pound stone, but... It moves! <laughs> Best thing ever. <laughs> so, studies continued throughout the 90s without any big developments. The general consensus was that the rocks seemed to move about once every three years, and only for about a period of about 10 seconds. For a long time, we had no idea why this happened, but there were two primary camps, those that believed ice was the cause and those that believed wind was the cause. Turns out they were both right. So, 99 years after the stones were discovered, in August 2014, two cousins, Richard and Jim Norris, finally solved the mystery. Their analysis involved 15 GPS-instrumented rocks, a weather station, and a time-lapse camera set up to record hourly between November to March each year. Their study would last two years. The rest track plat is a bit of a trek, so it's not like you can go and check on it on your lunch break. So they had they would go out five to eight times a year to, you know, to exchange battery packs and download data. Quote, science sometimes is an element of luck, Rich Norris said. We expected to wait five or ten years without anything moving, but only two years in the project, we just happened to be there at the right time to see it happen in person. So here is... One of the stones. Um, the stones themselves are protected because it's in a park. So they got stones from a quarry of similar size and composition and then used those to track and drill the holes into. So they brought their own stones, but it should, it, they're pretty much the same kind of stones that they, they are native to the area. Okay. Their observations show that the moving rocks requires a rare combination of events. First, the playa fills with water which must be deep enough to form floating ice during cold winter nights, but shallow enough to expose the rocks. As nighttime temperatures plummet, the pond freezes to form thin ice sheets of windowpane ice, which must be thin enough to move freely, but thick enough to maintain strength. On sunny days, the ice begins to melt and break up into large floating panels, which light winds drive across the playa, pushing rocks in front of them and leaving, the rocks, and leaving trails in the soft mud below the surface. Sheets of ice, of thin ice, about 40 or 50 feet across, were sliding atop of a film of melted water. Quote, it's basically being like a tugboat or a bulldozer, Norris says. It's pushing the rocks very slowly along. These observations appended previous theories that had proposed hurricane force winds, dust devils, slick algae films, or thick sheets of ice as the likely contributors to rock motion. Instead, rocks moved under light winds of about 10 miles per hour and were driven by, less, by ice less than 3 to 5 millimeters or quarter of an inch thick. So a measurement too thin to grip the large rocks and lift them off the playa, which resulted, which several papers had proposed as a mechanism to reduce friction. Further, the rocks moved only a few inches per second with it being about two to six meters per minute in total. A speed that is almost imperceptible at a distance and without stationary reference points. Quote, it's possible that tourists have actually seen this thing, this happening without realizing. It's really tough to gauge what the rock is in motion and if all the other rocks around it are moving, especially. So not only that, they caught it on camera. Yeah. 
Let me grab you. They were lucky. Wow. Right. So it's stop motion. Um, but take a look at that, and you will see some stones moving. It looks like they're in a lake. That's amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Holy moly. I don't like rocks, and this is cool. <laughs> so the largest rock movement the research team witnessed and documented was on December 20th, 2013. It involved more than 60 rocks, with some rocks moving up to 734 feet. Between December 2013 and January 2014, there were multiple movement events. Some GPS-measured moves lasted up to 16 minutes, and a number of stones moved more than five times during the existence of the Plata Pond in the winter of 2013 and 14. Quote, we, d- we documented five movement events in the two and a half months that the pond existed, and some involved hundreds of rocks, says Richard Norris. So we have seen that even in Death Valley, famous for its heats, for famous for its heat, floating ice is a powerful force in rock motion. But we have not yet seen any of the really big ones move. Does it work the same way? So, yeah, like, so, so the first one, we've got the mystery solved. Um, we still haven't seen any records, any, you know, any massive ones move. You know, we theorize it can be the same thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, until it's been recorded, it's hard to say for sure. <laughs> so there have been issues with theft and vandalism of the rocks over the years. Um, on May 30th, 2013, the Los Angeles Times reported that the park officials were looking into the theft of several of the rocks from Death Valley National Park. In August 2016, around 10 miles of tire tracks were left in the plow by someone driving around it illegally. Photographer visiting visiting in September also noted that the initials D and K were newly carved into one of the rocks. Although reports at the time suggested investigators had identified the subject, the vandal has not been identified as of March 2018. A team of volunteers cleaned the tire tracks and the rest track using gardening tools and 750 gallons of water. Wow. Why? Well, it's because they wanted to restore it to its national... Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I thought they were... I don't know why, but for some reason I was like, why are they destroying it with water? <laughs> no, they're fixing why? it. <laughs> they're fixing it, Courtney. <laughs> now, Death Valley isn't the only place that this has been observed. There is a place in Nevada at the Little Bonnie Claire Plat as well as been seen. And there are rumors of similar things happening around the world, though. I was not able to find exact um, places. But what we do know is that this event has happened elsewhere and has happened for, it's been happening for around 200 million years. 2017, a paleontologist Paul Olson of the Columbia University discovered a fossil with pristine dinosaur footprints. But not just that, there was a sailing stone footprint. Future. This is an exciting discovery, not just for the sailing stones, but for the dinosaurs, as it could indicate evidence of a briefly freezing temperatures in the tropics during the early Jurassic 200 period 200 million years ago when the when the dinosaur world expanded and mammals started to evolve and diversify at a furious rate more evidence will need to be found but it's pretty dope nonetheless (laughs) that's the sailing stones of death valley that's so cool oh my gosh i've never heard of this that's really (laughs) awesome yeah super neat i remember when i first heard about like i just couldn't wrap my head around what was happening like how how did how did this work (laughs) I never would have guessed it was ice. <laughs> a yeah. little bit of water. Yeah, totally. totally. Just like, rocks that move. That's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Nathan, do you want to go next? Sure. Guys, we're going to talk more science. Yay, Yay. science! <sighs> this time we're going to talk about 
particle physics, which I know sweet fuck all about. Um, <laughs> oh. And not really, like, super in-depth. Uh, but more specifically, we're going to talk about particle accelerators. Most notably, probably what we have heard of the most is the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. Um, that was built by CERN. Uh, however, after looking into it, I realized that there are uh, almost 50 total, including the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. There are uh, 36 in North America, uh, including one here in Vancouver. What? Uh, there is, yeah, so there's one here in Vancouver. Uh, it's called Triumph, and uh, it's actually the university. Um, I had no idea that there were so many in the world. Yeah, uh, and there are, uh, there are three in Michigan. Um, <laughs> Field trip, uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> there are, there's one in Africa. There are six in uh, the Asias. Um, and uh, because I lost my list somewhere, uh, I think there's 11 more that they all over the world. Yeah. Um, basically, their whole reason for existing is to prove theories around um, particle particle physics and to prove or disprove the existence of particular um, particles and you know things that they're trying that science is trying to learn about the universe so generally like the best way to do this is literally to smash particles together um, in basically beams and the energy that is let off by the particles colliding uh, sort of gives them a snapshot of what is happening. Um, it is the best way to create mass within these particles to prove their existence, basically. Um, now, this is all leading up to something, obviously, uh, but we are going to focus on the Large Hadron Collider that is um, run uh, at the CERN complex uh, in Europe. Now, the Large Hadron Collider is uh, its in a tunnel that is 27 kilometers in circumference. Uh, it is on the France and Switzerland border near Geneva. It is 574 feet beneath the earth, 27 kilometers or 17 miles in circumference. Uh, and it runs as deep as 574 feet beneath the earth. Um, now, there is no uh, real schematic that they gave us. However, there is a relatively simple 
um, image that sort of lays out the whole thing. And there are multiple um, experiments that are always going on. Uh, you can almost look at, think of them as like different divisions of the uh, of the accelerator. Uh, they've got Atlas, which is a toroidal LHC apparatus. These names are I like the acronyms better than the actual full names of the experiments. Um, <laughs> Alice, uh, a large ion collider experiment. Um, Totem, total cross section. Uh, elastic scattering and diffraction disassociation. Uh, and then they have phaser. So there are a lot of experiments always going on in this place, right? There are multiple experiments for multiple different types of um, of questions that they're trying to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the complex itself, there is a, it is just absolutely massive. Um, this was built in um, between 1998 and 2008, uh, between 100 countries, um, I think 10,000 scientists, and there were multiple, like thousands of universities uh, included in the building of this as well. Um, sorry, hundreds of universities and labs uh, and more than 100 countries involved, 10,000 scientists all kind of came together. It didn't start actually doing any of its experiments until uh 2010 and collecting any real data so they did so this is the actual um complex area uh there is a lot going on um but in 2008 when they first started doing their first uh like spin-up uh tests of the um of the collider there was an issue. So an accident happened where one of the, uh, I guess one of the riggings came loose and uh, one or more 10 ton magnets nope. came loose and destroyed a section of the collider. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Uh, That's putting how a sci-fi book starts, like <laughs> right, yeah. So that pushed back testing, obviously, uh, by fourteen months, because well, they had to fix fucking everything that just went wrong. Um, and that is they all they all they refer to it is is the accident. <laughs> Which is my favorite fucking thing. Like, it is just the accident. That is so good. Um, and this is this is before they even started really gathering data. Um wow. and then they had another they had another incident um in 2019. 
that also put things back uh, a little while. Um, and, you know, 2010, they finally were able to start up their experiments. Uh, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, you've been working on this thing for 10 years. Like, what's another two years of, of delay? Uh, it Wait, was... so did they have issues in 2009 or 2019? 2009. Okay, you said 2019. <laughs> I was really confused. Like, are we time traveling now? Oh, but... sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, 2009. Cool. Um, so they went through, obviously they go through uh, testing phases, uh, and then they went through rest phases where they needed to do upgrades. So between 2013 and 2015 was a rest phase for them. They didn't do any experiments. They did upgrades based on what they needed to what they needed to see, whether they needed to, you know, improve on um, their their colliders and their equipment all around. And then they started testing again for another couple of years. Uh, and then they went into another rest phase. And the reason the whole reason why I'm doing this in the first place is because they just exited their test phase and they started testing again, uh, I think, within the last week. Um, <clears throat> now, one of the things that they were trying to figure out was what, um, back in the day, Stephen Hawking had referred to as the quote-quote God particle. Um, the existence of a particle that he he theorized was out there based on you know the expansion of the universe and different fields where each sort of particle kind of exists and interacts based on its mass. Uh, and I'm going to state this for everyone out there you can tell i'm not particularly i'm not going into the details because i don't understand the details as well so i'm not going to try and give you any information and lead you astray because i know that i don't know it as well as i should or as i could and i probably never will so uh, you mean you're i'm giving not you the gonna pretend to i'm going to give you the sir i'm giving you surface level <laughs> Um, so, uh, and no, no, I'm not going to pretend. Um, <laughs> however, in 2012, 2012, um, they, uh, two of the, uh, of the experiments, um, and let me figure it out here. Uh, it, it was Atlas and CMS. Uh, in July 4th of 2012, announced that they had each observed a new particle in um, in what they call the mass region around 125 GeV. I don't know exactly what that particular means, um, but it is basically how they... I think it's how 
they determine like their the the field of range basically of what they are particularly looking for. Um, and this was their sort of confirmation that the particle that they were looking for, uh, this quote quote god particle that has been named the Higgs boson, um, after <clears throat> sorry after the uh, scientists that were part of the the experiment. Um, they found this particle that was consistent with what they were looking for in both the Atlas experiment as well as the CMS experiment. Um, and so that was sort of their their confirmation that something along the lines of what their predicted model was was actually out there, and now they know what to look for. Uh, in October 2013, they were um, given the Nobel Prize in Physics, so awarded jointly to Francois Engelbert, uh, Engelert and Peter Higgs for the theoretical discovery of a mechanism that contributes to our understanding of the origin of mass of subatomic particles, uh, which was recently confirmed through the discovery of the predicted fundamental particle uh, by Atlas and CMS. So what does this mean? Well, a couple of years ago, Twitter, Here's where it gets weird. Um, <clears throat> a gentleman by the name of Nick Hinton on Twitter started a thread. Uh, and he says, you know, I wanted to talk about the subject for a while now. The other day I had a random urge to look into it again. And I read some old stuff, you know, just for fun. Ever since then, I've noticed other people talking about it again. It's been really frustrating for me because I have nothing to refresh my memory while writing this. Found a few things here or there that are helping me piece the puzzle together again. But I know there used to be so much more out there. Uh, and then he posits the question, so did the world actually end in 2012? Well. It was the year that the scientists at CERN finally found the Higgs boson. You know, the particle Stephen Hawking predicted could destroy the universe, or in his own words, cause the universe to undergo a catastrophic vacuum decay. Okay. <laughs> Hawking, don't do that to us, please. <laughs> don't speak these things into existence. That's how they work. Yeah, exactly. Right? Quit observing shit. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the discovery of the Higgs boson was what the Mayans predicted all of those years ago. Oh shit. Oh wait, can I can I pull the Anunnaki into that too cuz they were all like <laughs> right? It all right? ties together. It's all connected. <laughs> um there's the old cliche argument that nothing has felt right since 2012. I agree with this. 
Maybe it has something to do with growing up and getting older. But ever since then, it seems like the world descends more and more into chaos each day. Time even feels faster. I think that's relativity, and I think that's because we're old. Yes, I also think yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so he goes on to say, like I've said before, I think we live in a series of simulations. Perhaps the universe was destroyed by CERN, and our collective consciousness was moved into a parallel universe next door. That would almost be identical. Uh, so this is really this is this is fun and interesting because um, if anyone out there has uh, has watched like Stein's Gate uh, or anything like that. The idea of like some sort of catastrophic event happening on one timeline and you being moved to another timeline sort of goes along with that. Um, it, it's the idea that maybe the Mandela effect is not necessarily people misremembering but maybe somehow you've jumped timelines because something catastrophic has happened in yours and now your consciousness has merged across to a different timeline to a different dimension um because that's the universe correcting itself basically if something happened there well you're not meant to be gone so now your consciousness is over here or something happened and now your timeline is cut off or it merged. Um, so right now that's the, that's the theory. Uh, <clears throat> so he again continues. Some people remember Febreze uh, F-E-B-R-E-E-Z-E, -E -E, rather than Febreze, F-E-B-R-E-Z-E. -E -E. Some people remember uh, Skechers with a T instead of Skechers without a T. Uh, Looney Tunes with two O's instead of Looney Tunes with a U. Uh, J.C. Penny. Uh, N Y instead of JCPenney and E Y. The list goes on. If these things don't feel, look, or feel right to you, you're not alone. Gosh. Uh, I mean, bears. Like, right? The, the Berenstein bears. One. Yep. yep. Yeah. That one fucks me up every time. But also, these things are like written words. And I think when we're reading sometimes, our brains like assume, like with Febreze. Because it has the word breeze in it, you're going to assume it's spelled like breeze. Yeah. Things yep. like that. Or like Bernstein Bears, I think, is because like it's a German or Germanic last name. And so like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And it's been slightly mispronounced for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it supposed to be like the Bernstein Bears or something? Uh, so uh, at least here, it would be Baron Berenstain. Yeah. Instead of Berenstein. Okay. And I always remembered it as Berenstein for some reason. Yeah, right. So, yeah. 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 
It's just Mandela effects. That's all it is. Yeah. And he, he says that. He says the Mandela effects get much creepier, though. Some people remember the Statue of Liberty being in a totally different location. What? That location being Ellis Island, but it's actually on Liberty Island. And, like, yeah. Ellis Island is right next door. So... Yeah. Like, but are these people, like, have they been there and, like, they've actually physically seen it? Or did they assume that they were that she was on Ellis Island because, like... That's where all the immigrants came through. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And because it's, it's fun. Fuck so it. he says, now, if that's not strange enough, if you go on Google Maps Street View, there's a few specific areas of Liberty Island where the Statue of Liberty is just gone. And then he says residue from the previous timeline, question mark. And I couldn't I couldn't confirm that. So I tried. That was not a thing I could see. Yeah, that sounds like bullshit to me. I'm going to be real honest. Yeah. Uh, apparently right before, and he goes on, apparently right before the United States entry into World War One, the Germans committed the first act of terrorism on U.S. soil. It was considered one of the largest artificial non-nuclear explosions to have ever occurred. I'm wondering why I didn't hear about this in school. Because it didn't fucking happen, dude. Right? Uh, it sounds like you didn't pay attention in school, my man. Yeah, something's something's yeah. happening. But also, like, take all of your ideas, dude, and write an alternative history book and make a bunch of money. I love those. Uh, yeah, hundred yeah. percent, yeah. dude. Um. So yeah, he doesn't really have like much of an explanation beyond his like what the fuck actually happened um but there and i i couldn't get to all of his tweets because he blocks you can see them um yeah i don't uh, like that no well i mean just like if you're not if we're not um mutuals Yes, that's the one. Um, further down, he's like, there's also this weirdo Twitter account, Statue Ellis uh, FDN, which makes no mention of Liberty Island at all and sports a creepy banner photo of people walking upstairs that lead to nothing. Oh my god. I mean, but there are creepy Twitter accounts. I mean, that's what Twitter is. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he says, well, anyways, a while back, there was a viral thread on 4chan posted by someone who claimed to be one of the 23 scientists at CERN responsible for creating the Mandela effect. They okay. claimed the planet was destroyed and we were placed in a simulated world. Okay, dokey. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of simulations within simulations or a multiverse yeah. isn't something new been a part of the eastern philosophy since the third century mm -hmm. uh, so it gets <laughs> it gets real weird um the buddhist oh god the buddhist conception of the universe in an image uh 
So essentially the <laughs> I uh I was going to go off on something but I I have to stop because I missed a tweet yesterday from this thread that's super important now in this very moment. He says, is there another meaning to the end of time? Um, there, was a, there was a comment that says the government can't time travel past 2012. So obviously 2012 is the end of time, or that's the consideration as part of all of this. Preston B. Nichols. Fucking yes. I was going to say 2012. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> uh, a supposed whistleblower who wrote the books detailing time travel experiments at Montauk Air Force claimed that they were never able to time travel past 2012 because they could find no future beyond it. It wasn't Preston. It was Bielik. But okay. That's you can't right. even cite your wrong sources right. <laughs> wow. Uh, Stranger Things and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind are actually both loosely based on those experiments. Uh, no! Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, the theory is, is that in 2012, CERN found the Higgs boson and we, time ended at least our timeline ended and either we are in a simulation or in a simulation within a simulation or um, according to possible multiverse theory, we have been transplanted um, to into another timeline altogether. Which would explain the Mandela effect, I guess. Um, and all of this is because scientists just wanted to know things. <laughs> Particle physics. Like physics? I, I don't like anything where observing it specifically, fundamentally, changes everything about it. Also, it doesn't make sense. Also, they fucked up our lives. This is why we had the pandemic, apparently... I want right. my original timeline back. I want flying cars, please. Oh, that'd be great. Right. right? And, and no Elon Musk. Just as, a, oh, just as an aside, um, the Jetsons is only 40 years from now. I saw that. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't think we're going to be there in 40 years. But I think you know. Fallout is more realistic than the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, oh yeah. Optimism right there. Not safe. Oh, no. Um, but like, yeah, I, there was the, I guess there is no real sort of logical conclusion to uh, me telling all of this to you guys, except for the fact that it just seems so fucking wild. Um, and like, again, I'm going to, I'm going to step back into, uh, step back, uh, 
a uh, couple minutes. Um, Hallie, I know you're not, not like a huge like animation person, but Steins Gate is a fantastic telling of like time travel theory and just fucking weird shit. Um, oh, but that sounds it is, interesting. And it is the one of the only sci-fi um shows that actually closes the loop on the time travel theory situation that happens in a um uh, in a show um it's obviously it's it's uh Japanese animation and some of the characters are really fucking weird um but it is it is very good uh albeit a little bit slow at times but yeah um But yeah, that's that's all I really have. Uh, I didn't even know how to like end this. Um... There. In tears by ending the world. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There, there's, there's a there's a wrap. <laughs> but here's 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 a question that I'm going to leave you guys with. If the world ended in 2012 when CERN found the Higgs boson. And then they stopped experiments and then they started again in like 2015, 2016. And they stopped and they started again like four or five days ago. Did the world end? And then did the simulation end? And then did the simulation inside the simulation end? Are you saying are we in a simulation within a simulation within a simulation? Yeah, simulation inception. That's what I'm saying. I don't like it. Uh-uh. <laughs> or is it the fact that like they experimented once, they destroyed the universe, somehow we got stuffed into a into a simulation, they started experimenting, and then we just went one simulation deeper, and then again one simulation deeper. Is that how that works? I don't know. That's it. Call the whole thing off. Reality's a bust, y'all. It was a good. It was a good <laughs> try, but time to go. Nothing matters. Time to <laughs> time to time to go do whatever we want. <laughs> uh, times, good times. Yeah. That's it for this week. Next week, Courtney tells us about Live Rock, a staple among aquarium hobbyists that may contain sinister surprises. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story that you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get it on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend.